You're listening to The Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. Serious talk about the sacred book. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Bible for Normal People. And we're back. Pete Ruins Exodus series. This is part two. And we're going to hit chapters three and four. Remember last time we looked at chapters one and two and... I said, it's going to take us a little bit more time to go through the first few chapters because a lot of the theology of the book is set up in really, I think, the first four chapters. So, we did chapters one and two last time where we met Moses and he ran away from Egypt. And now we get to sort of like the real meaty part of the introduction. This sets up a lot of stuff that's going to come afterwards. So, we're going to, again, take a little bit of time doing this and, you know, the subsequent episodes are not going to be dealing with a couple chapters at a time because we'd be here for like a 20-part series, which ain't going to happen, folks. As much as I like it, as much as I love talking about this book and thinking about it, it's not going to happen. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and she said, can I try some? And so I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code normal people. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code normal people. So, okay, listen, in these three chapters, what, what I do, I always do this when I think about presenting or teaching on topics. I try to break it down from like a 30,000 foot view level and I've come up with three basic parts, three sections to these two chapters. And the first is that God reveals the plan to Moses. And this is the whole Mount Sinai and burning bush thing. And that's the first few verses of chapter three. Then the bulk of this is Moses having heard the plan, he tries everything he can to get out of it. And that takes us from like the middle of chapter three to the middle of chapter four. And then the last part is Moses finally gets on board with the program, but he's really still not super happy about it. And it doesn't go off without a hitch. There's something very, very weird that happens in this part of the book. It's hard to explain, actually. But those are the three. And we'll take each of those. And like last time, and like we're going to do for the rest of the series, I'll break it down the way I see it, the big picture, and then sort of drop down in each of these sections and talk about a few things that I think are important or interesting or valuable for a number of reasons to talk about. So, hope that sounds okay. All right, so first, uh, the first part is that Moses meets God and God reveals his plan to Moses. And the first thing we see there is the location. They're at this mountain of God, and that mountain, of course, is Mount... I bet you were going to say Sinai, huh? Well, it's not Mount Sinai. It's Mount Horeb, H-O-R-E-B. It's not called Mount Sinai until much later in the book, like chapter 16. And Mount Sinai is the more common term, but it's not here. It's, it's called something else. It's called Horeb. And also, if you notice, at the very first verse, the name of Moses' father-in-law is Jethro, but we met him already in chapter 2, and there his name is Ruel. 
So what the heck? You got two names of the mountains. You got two names of his father-in-law. Actually, there's a third name for Moses' father-in-law. That's Hobab. That comes up in the book of Numbers, which obviously we won't get to. But the question is, why is this? And, you know, some people might explain it as like, okay, listen, just alternate names for the same place. It doesn't really matter. It's not a big deal. And in a way, they're right. It doesn't really matter. It's not that big of a deal. But it's still curious that you've got these different names for the mountain of God and the different names for for Moses' father-in-law. And the way this is typically explained in the world of biblical scholarship is that what we have here are two different traditions of the Exodus story, two different ancient versions, maybe oral, maybe written down, who knows, that the editor of the book of Exodus as we have it, which probably happened after the return from exile in Babylon, what happened after 539, this editor brought these together and sort of compiled them because he is interested in preserving traditions, not eliminating them. So he puts these traditions side by side. And there's a lot more into this to, to really explain this, at least the way a lot of scholars look at it. If you are interested, we have a podcast episode from season two by a, a scholar from the University of Chicago, Jeffrey Stackert, who talked about the composition of the Pentateuch and uh, the Pentateuch's the first five books of the Bible, Exodus being the second one, and, and how the books might have come together and how you can see this sort of thing, these differences, maybe tensions in the text. And this is one of them. You have two names for Mount Sinai, two names for Jethro, uh, for rather Moses' father-in-law. That's just worth noticing. The second thing that I find really interesting with this mountain is its location. Now, if you read the beginning of chapter three, Moses is tending the sheep of his father-in-law Jethro. Which, by the way, side issue here, the rabbis have said that tending sheep is sort of job training for Moses, because he's going to be tending sheep, meaning Israel, for a long time. Even in Psalm 77, like the very end, verse 20, there Moses is described as the shepherd of Israel, and David is a shepherd, right? He's a shepherd first, and he shepherds the people. God is a shepherd in the Old Testament. There's something about shepherding and leading people that analogy is very nice for ancient people. And of course, you know, the New Testament, Jesus is the good shepherd, right? So here you have Moses tending the sheep. Now, remember where he is. He is in Midian, and he takes them from Midian to find a place for them to graze, or whatever sheep do. I'm from the suburbs. I got cats and dogs. I have no idea. They might sit down with a fork and knife for all I know, but who knows? So, he's taken them out to take care of them. He's doing what shepherds do. And if you look, at, you know, Google it or look in any good Bible that has maps in the back and locate where Midian is. It's like on the far right side of the Sinai Peninsula. It's pretty much up there, pretty north up there on the other side of this little sea that, you know, the Gulf of Aqaba, it's sometimes called. And Midian is way up there. And if you look at the location of Mount Sinai, the traditional location is in that Sinai Peninsula, but way south. And you can look at maybe the, the, the scales that they give in study Bibles, and it's probably like about 100 miles or so. So, the idea that Moses was shepherding the sheep of his father-in-law, Jethro, the Midianite, and he took them way down there, a really strange credulity. So, you know, most people who read this say, well, listen, it's, Mount Sinai is not down there. That, that's really a Christian legend. It's the site of St. Catherine's Monastery, and 
sort of a tourist drop, I guess. You know, here's Mount Sana. But, you know, nobody really knows where that mountain is, but it doesn't seem to be way down there. It's probably not that far south, which, again, is like 100 miles away. Mount Sinai is probably up in the Midian area, and that is in what Paul calls Arabia. See, in Galatians 4.25, he refers to Mount Sinai as being in Arabia. That's much more consistent with it being in Midian than with it being way down south in the Sinai Peninsula. Okay, So, that's just a matter of, I think it's, I'd even say it's common sense a bit. You know, you're not going to take the sheep way down into a desert. You want to keep them alive, not kill them. Right, so so the location of the mountain is probably very different from what we're used to, and where it is makes sense because there is actually a road, an ancient road that runs from Egypt around the Nile Delta. Again, if you have a map, look at it. The Nile Delta, which is a very northern part of Egypt, where the Nile River pours into the Mediterranean Sea, there is a road that you can take from there to way up north where Midian is, probably a trade route of some sort. Right, so that's that might be the route that the Israelites take later. That may be what's understood there. So that all this makes sense, right? But if you put Mount Sinai way the heck down there, it's just like, what are we doing down here, right? Okay, so that's for the mountain of God. The burning bush itself is sort of a weird thing, right? The burning bush is first of all the angel of the Lord appears to him, and later it's God speaking. So this angel of the Lord and God are somewhat equated and, you know, people spill a lot of ink trying to decide who is this figure, who, who, who is this angel of the Lord? And some say, was well, it Jesus in the Old Testament? Probably not because Jesus isn't an angel, right? That's, that wouldn't, that's not really a logical conclusion, I think, to come to. But it, it is a figure that pops up an awful lot, as you may know, in the Old Testament. And who this character is, is just, you know, we don't really know other than he is a messenger of Yahweh and so closely connected to Yahweh that it's the two are almost like equated. To speak to the angel of the Lord is to speak to Yahweh himself. And it's hard to speak to Yahweh directly, you know, in the Old Testament. So, you know, th- that's probably what it means. But so anyway, when you see angel of the Lord, I think it's oftentimes fine just to equate that with God or his divine name, Yahweh which is going to happen really quickly in this story anyway. Yeah. So, it's it's hard to identify who this character is. But, you know, the question people have asked is like, why a bush? Well, the Hebrew word for bush is Sena, which is very, very similar to Sinai. And it may be that the name Sinai has influenced how the story has been told. If you follow me, like the location of Sinai came first, and then because it's a place in Sinai, a bush becomes part of this story. That's a possibility. Of course, I'm just conjecturing. We don't know. Or it could be the other way around. There's a bush, a wonderful bush, and people called it bush, bushland, bush town or something. Uh, more important, though, I think is, you know, why? I mean, think about this. Why fire? Well, fire is common language in the Old Testament for the appearance of God. The technical term is that a theophany. When, when a the, a theophany, when a God appears, and fire is something that accompanies that. You see that, for example, way back in, in, in Genesis 15, when God makes a covenant with Abraham, and he's depicted as this fiery pot, a flaming pot. And also later, you know, 
you know the Exodus story itself, we're going to come to the Red Sea, and there we have a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud. But again, a pillar of fire is a way in which God is represented in the Old Testament. So that that makes some sense. What doesn't make sense is why doesn't it burn up? Right? Why isn't it consumed? That's what Moses sees. You know, he sees this bush and he's curious about it because it's burning but it's not being consumed. And again, it's interesting, the text doesn't actually explain a lot of these questions that we have, but some have suggested that it already anticipates the plague stories where natural properties are suspended. So here we have natural properties are suspended, something is not being consumed. Others have thought throughout history that it's sort of like just a metaphor of some sort. It's, it's symbolic, for example, of Israel not being consumed under the pressure of being in Egyptian slavery. Who, who knows? I mean, you know, I'm just throwing out options here, but there isn't much to go on. I think it's more than simply, wow, what a miracle. What, what a random, wonderful thing to say. Whatever it is, it's not random. It has meaning. It has theological meaning. We just don't know what it is. At least I don't. Maybe you do. If you do, message me. I'd love to hear it. So also, when Moses approaches this bush, he's told, stay back. You know, God says, stay where you are and remove your sandals. See, you can't just walk over here like this. You, there, there is a, a reverence to being in God's presence. And here's the thing that I find so intriguing about this. And again, I'm not making any of this stuff up. But in, in Jewish theology, you know, ancient Jewish theology, Mount Sinai is seen as the, the, the template for the temple itself later on. What I mean by that is this. Any Israelite could be at the foot of the mountain, right? Part of the way up, its elders can go there. All the way up, it's only Moses. Well, because that's the most holy place. That's like the temple, the outer court. Pretty much anybody can be there. You go into the holy place, well, you're restricted. Only some can go in there. And then the most holy place, the holy of holies, only the high priest can go. So, what we're seeing here is already, again, a preview of what's going to be a rather significant thing later on in Exodus when the tabernacle is built, which is the movable version of the temple that's built later under Solomon. Right? And so, it's, it's like, you, don't, you can't just walk over here and take your shoes off, show some respect, you know? This isn't a normal thing, you've got to do something different, like taking your shoes off, which is still, as you know, a sign of respect in some cultures. And I even go into people's houses, sometimes I see them taking off their shoes, so I take mine off too, just to follow along with the custom, you know? But it's, that's not exactly the same thing, but it's still the idea of some sort of reverence or respect. So Moses is in a different place, and you know his his curiosity is already turning into some sort of uh, well he, fear. He puts his head down, you know, and he isn't curious really anymore. It's just it, curiosity is beginning to turn into fear, especially when God relays the plan to Moses directly. And he begins, you know, we're all still in that first section here, right? Like around verse 8 or 9. You know, God says to Moses, you know, listen, we already know each other, but you don't know it. What do you mean by that? He says, well, 
I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So I'm the God of your father, which means, see, typically it's God of your fathers, like the God of your ancestors. But I think in this case, it says the God of your father, Moses, meaning, you know, I know you were raised in Egypt in Pharaoh's household, but you need to know that you're dealing with the God of your parents and the God maybe of your parents before that. This is a family thing. You're actually deeply connected to me. I know you. And you're going to get to know me. So, that's the thing. We know each other. Second thing. Okay, Moses, you may be wondering why you're up here talking to me. I'm coming to deliver my people from suffering and to bring them to a paradise-like land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And, okay, that's great. Thanks for telling me, you know, what, but what's in this for me, you know, so to speak. I mean, Moses doesn't say that, but, you know, okay, great. Why are you telling me this? Why are you telling me what you're going to do? And that is when God sort of, you know, the other shoe drops. And that's the next verse. This is verse 10, and where Moses tries to get out of it because God says to him, yeah, I'm going to send you to do it. Right. And and this is, you know, Moses' first uh, try to sort of get out of what God is telling him to do, right? I'm going to send you to do it. I'm going to send you, Moses. And that's the thing that generates the discussion now that goes in section two of this uh, these chapters, where Moses does everything he can to try to get out of it. And so, what we have here is the first of no fewer than five complaints on Moses' part to get out of it. Hey, Moses, I've heard the cries of my people. I'm going to come deliver them. By which, of course, I mean you're going to do it. So the first complaint is, uh, excuse me, what? Yeah, Moses doubts his ability to do this. And he goes, who am I? And and I want to sort of encourage you not to think of it as like a lack of faith or something. I mean, of course he's going to say that. Who wouldn't say that? I mean, who, who am I to do this? I just ran away from Egypt. And guess what? The Egyptians were mad at me because I killed one of theirs. And even my own people, the Israelites, don't trust me very much because, you know, I tried to break up a fight between two of them and they got all testy with me. Yeah, I'm just, just leave me alone here. <laughs> I'm having a good time just being a shepherd. And I was just curious about this bush. And all of a sudden, you got me doing this thing. Who am I to do this? And God's response is, I will be with you. This is a theme that's going to continue in this chapter. The theme is this. Moses says, who am I? I can't do this. I can't do this. And God responds, I will be with you. I'm going to be your mouth. I'm going to do this with you. You're not alone. It's a really a battle of the eyes here in, in, uh, in this section of Exodus. And it's really, in, in Hebrew, it's very pronounced. There's a word used that really emphasizes this first-person pronoun, I, that you don't normally see. So, who's going to be in charge of this? Is it Moses, I'm not just sending you off on your own, pal. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to help you. And in fact, to let you know, to let you know that I'm with you, I'm going to give you a sign. But the problem is, here's the sign that God gives him. When you've brought your people out of Egypt, you shall worship God on this mountain. 
right? You see that? That's not much of a sign if you ask me. Hey, here's the sign. Here's the sign that I've sent you and you're going to be successful. When you get back here, you're going to worship me on the mountain. That's not a lot of help. What I need is a sign right now that's going to, like, give me a sign. <laughs> that's not a sign. That's nothing. I want to know right now what's going to happen and whether this is going to work or not. And so some sort of, like, like a bolt of lightning, a rainstorm, an earthquake, something to let me know right now. That's the kind of sign I want, but that's not what Moses gets. This happens elsewhere in the Bible too, by the way, folks. The sign is something like, this. no, this. I need a sign now, not later. But maybe that's the sound of God laughing. I don't know. Or, or uh, maybe, maybe just pushing Moses, you know, in the logic of the story, pushing Moses to, yeah, you've got to trust me. I'm not just going to give you a sign. Because if I give you that, you want something else. The sign is, I'm with you, and you'll know it when it's over. So, Moses responds the way any of us would. He complains again because he's not really getting the answer that he wants. So, the next complaint is, is maybe the longest one of this section. But basically, he says, they're not going to believe me when I go back there and I tell the people that I'm the deliverer, I'm going to bring them out of Egypt. Again, I sort of have a reputation back there that not everybody thinks the best of me. And, and plus, after all this time has gone by, you know, I mean, actually, let's, let, let's think about that for a second. How much time has gone by? Well, it may be that he's about 80 years old right now. Well, Actually, he is about 80 in, in the logic of the story. If you look at uh, Exodus 7-7, seven, seven, when he confronts Pharaoh, it says that he's 80, and Aaron is 83, his brother. Okay, he's, he's 80, and he dies at 120, see at the end of the book of Deuteronomy. So, what tradition has said, Ju Jewish tradition has held, that he left Egypt at the age of 40, so he's been in Midian now for 40 years. So he spent the first 40 years in Egypt. He flees at the age of 40. He's in Midian for another 40 years. At the age of 80, he leaves to deliver the Israelites. He delivers them. And 40 years later, at the end of the wilderness period, he's 120 and he dies. And in fact, the book of Acts, okay, the New Testament, the book of Acts chapter 7 says that he's 40 when he leaves Egypt. Exodus doesn't say that. But Jewish tradition does, and the book of Acts reflects that older Jewish tradition, right? They're not just making that number up. It's not a biblical number, but it's a number of Jewish tradition because it seems like Moses' life goes into three nice phases. I think that's pretty cool. Of course, we don't know that, but that's, that's what the text says. Actually, that's what tradition says. So anyway, the point here is that, you know, Moses is not at all sure that this is going to work. And he says, I need a name. They're going to ask me, yeah, Moses, okay, who sent you? Tell us who it is. And, you know, maybe it's a little bit insulting for Moses to ask, you know, God, you know, I need a name here. They're going to ask me a name. I mean, it's sort of like asking a famous person that everyone else knows. You, know, you meet him at a dinner party or something. You say, excuse me, what is your name? And people, I need to tell people what's going on here. What's your name? And they go, it's like uh, Paul McCartney. You know, or LeBron James or something, or Beyonce. You know, it's, it's a little bit insulting, what's your name? So, God's answer to Moses, God's famous answer to Moses is, I am who I am. 
And then he says, I, just, just tell them I am sent you. What? They'll, they'll know who that is. And this is the part of chapter 3 that it seems that the Gospel of John takes and uses to describe Jesus when, he's, when Jesus says, I am the vine, or I am the good shepherd in John's Gospel. There are seven I am sayings, and most think that this is John connecting Jesus to this moment on Mount Sinai where God says, I am, and that's all there is to it. You know, it's interesting here whether, I don't know, it's not really an answer to a question because, you know, Moses doesn't know the name, I guess. I don't know. Does Would Moses not know who this is? Maybe he doesn't. Well, why wouldn't he know? He's Jewish. Well, he was raised Egyptian, so he doesn't know. I don't think it's the people who don't know the name. I think it's Moses who doesn't know it. Again, in the logic of the story, we're not talking about history necessarily here, just in the logic of the story. It's Moses who doesn't know the name. And so, right after that, you know, the Lord says to him, basically, all right, just just tell them the Lord sent you. And that's, you know, that word Lord in the Bible, when it's, when it's spelled with a capital L, and then the O-R-D, likewise in capital letters, but smaller letters, that word Lord is the way in English Bibles you represent the divine name Yahweh, Y-A-H-W-E-H. It gets a little bit confusing, but, you know, that divine name is typically not printed out in most, any Bible that I know. And that goes back to Jewish tradition, the reverence for the divine name, not wanting to pronounce it. So, the best way to pronounce it is not even to put it in the text. You put another word there, Lord. But that's his name, Yahweh. He's, He's announcing to Moses what his divine name is. Yahweh. And and here's the thing, the word Yahweh, nobody knows where that really comes from. But in this story, the word Yahweh is connected with the Hebrew verb to be. They're spelled very, very similarly, which is why when Moses asks him for his name, he says, he uses the verb to be, I am who I am. Tell them I am sent you. Listen, Moses, just tell them it's me, Yahweh, right? But, but this biblical writer, he's connecting that name Yahweh. He's sort of explaining to us where the term Yahweh came from, and it came from this Hebrew word, the most common word in the Hebrew language, in any language, to be. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning. Residential online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for All People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary, 
and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener of the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at the Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in, and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes, but we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you were in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction <laughs> level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We love the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. I'm just dwelling on that a bit because this has been an important element in the history of biblical scholarship, like maybe God's name is being announced here for the first time. And I'm I'm not so sure that's the case. I could be wrong about that. I just think it's Moses. It's not being announced for the first time. It's just being announced to Moses who doesn't know it. But the historical background for this name Yahweh is like a lot of things, when you compare them to the Bible's presentation, it might be a little bit more involved historically and complicated. And that's sort of like a podcast on its own. So, we're not going to do that now. But anyway, here, here you have, you know, God telling Moses, all right, tell them Yahweh sent you, and I'm the God of your ancestors, plural, you know, all the, not just you, Moses, but all the people, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and this is my ancient name, this is my name forever. They'll know who it is. So, okay, Moses, you got the credentials there, right? So then God continues, he gives further direction to Moses, this starts around verse 16, and he says, you know, first of all, you're going to reveal the plan to the elders, you're going to get the elders together, reveal the plan to them. Then, you're all going to go to Pharaoh. Interestingly enough, in the book of Exodus, the elders don't go anywhere. It's really just Moses and Aaron, and then even after a while, Aaron sort of drops out of the picture and Moses takes over. But, you know, at least here it says, you know, you guys go and tell Pharaoh this. Tell him, hey, Pharaoh, our God, Yahweh, told us that you have to let us go so we can take a three days journey into the wilderness to sacrifice to him. See, we're not going to do it here. Our God told, you can't deny what our God wants. Our God wants us to go into the wilderness on a three days journey to sacrifice to him, which raises a whole lot of questions like a three day journey. Are they going to just go out for three days far away from Egypt, sacrifice, and then come back? Is this the implication of what they're saying? In other words, is this like a little lie they're telling to Pharaoh to let them go? Which is not the first lie we've seen in Exodus. Remember the midwives? 
they tell Pharaoh, you know, hey, the reason we're not killing the kids is when they're born is because the Hebrew women are too vigorous. And by the time we get there, they've already given birth. We can't do anything. So, you know, it's it, it could be another example here of just tell them, all we want to do is go away in a three days journey. We'll come back. We just want to sacrifice. But Pharaoh won't even want to do that. See, actually, what three days journey probably means, I'm like 85% on board with this, but it probably doesn't mean literally we're going to go for three days. A three-day journey is just a way of saying we're getting out of here. It's it, We're going to go on a long journey, and we're going to sacrifice to God in the wilderness. But still, there's nothing here about, and we're going to be free of you and free of this place. It's when you think of the ultimate purpose of the Exodus to bring them freedom from Egyptian slavery. This is actually a pretty modest request to Pharaoh. But alas, God continues, he says, it's not going to work unless I show him my power, which is the plagues. You know, he's not going to let you go unless he, unless I stretch out my arm and I show him my mighty hand. That's biblical rhetoric for God's might. And here it refers to, of course, the plagues. And this is, I'm just throwing this in for free because I love stuff like this. In verse 19, God says that, I, you know, God is going to stretch out his arm. In the Hebrew word there is shalach. He's going to stretch out his arm. And as a result, Pharaoh is going to send out the people. And the Hebrew word for send out is also shalach. So, God is going to shalach, stretch out his arm, and force Pharaoh to shalach the people. I don't know. I just, I love this stuff. This is why I went to seminary. Ignore that. If it's not fun for you, it's fun for me. And it's my podcast. Anyway. So, here's the point. I'm going to have to strong arm Pharaoh, God says, with the plagues, and then he'll give in. Right? In other words, the purpose, I'm dwelling on this for a reason, folks. The reason why God is going to send these 10 plagues is because Pharaoh is going to need convincing in order to let the people go. And then he'll give in, and you'll leave. And in fact, you're going to make out okay in the deal, folks. You're going to plunder the Egyptians when you leave. You're going to take their jewelry, silver, uh, gold, clothing. And in fact, the women are going to be the ones plundering. Not warriors, not the men, but the women are going to do it because Egypt will be so meek and so beaten down that the women are just going to ask, the people are going to be positively disposed toward them, and they're going to give them their stuff. Hello, everyone. My name is Ed McNamara, and I'm part of the producers group here at The Bible for Normal People. I appreciate these podcasts because I find the subject matter thought-provoking and relevant. Our guest speakers are informative and wise, and Pete and Jared, with their comments and questions and humor, keep it just light enough that is accessible for the rest of us normal people. If you've gotten something from this free podcast, I'd like to take this opportunity to mention how you can support Pete and Jared in their work. This podcast is brought to you by supporters on the Patreon platform. For as little as $1 a month, you can be part of a group that brings this podcast to normal people everywhere. As a gift for your support, we have book studies, chat groups, and lots of videos from Pete and Jared, so check it out at patreon.com backslash the Bible for normal people. If you aren't able to support the show financially, go to iTunes and rate and review the podcast. This can go a long way to help others find us. One group in particular we want to thank is our producers group, who work hard to tell Pete and Jared how they're doing, 
and how they can do it better. Our thanks go to Matt Porter, John R. Hawkins, Laura Grant, Sean Bloom, Joel Beebe, Eric Hendricks, David Hunley, and Manuel J. Gomez. The Bible for normal people couldn't happen without you. Now, back to the podcast. So, Moses, is that enough for you? Nope. Moses isn't done yet. He's got three more complaints he's got to get through. Okay, so the third complaint, now we're in chapter four. Done with chapter three. Okay, Moses isn't done complaining. He goes, listen, what if they still don't believe me? All right, I'm going to tell them all this stuff about your name, and then I'm going to tell them your plan. But there's no guarantee they're going to listen to me. So, you know, how do, how are they going to know that you appear to me? And here's the, the thing is that you have to almost be looking at the text for this, but in chapter 4, verse 1, Moses says, suppose they do not believe me or listen to me, but say the Lord did not appear to you. I think it's important to remember that the they here is not Pharaoh or the Egyptians. He's not even talking about them yet. The they here is the elders. It's not about convincing Egypt yet. It's first about convincing the elders because, you know, again, Moses didn't leave on the best of terms, even with his own people. And one of the themes that we hit in the Exodus story and throughout the life of Moses, throughout the rest of the books of the Pentateuch or of the Torah, is this theme of the people complainer grumbling against Moses' leadership. So, here we're seeing this theme already anticipated, and Moses is anticipating it, saying, listen, they're not going to believe me. I'm going to have a tough time convincing them. So, God says, fine. Okay. How about some signs now? I'll give you some signs. You wanted signs before, here they are. First of all, take your staff, right? Throw it to the ground, it becomes a snake, pick it up by the end, its tail, and then it turns into a staff again. So, that's one sign. And it's not just a random sign because the, you know, the, the, the power symbol of the Egyptians, well, not the only one, but it, it's, it's at least a power symbol is a cobra. And if you know some of the, the headdresses that the pharaohs wear, it looks like, the, you know, a cobra's little neck things opening up, you know, fanning out like little wings. But that's what the headdress looks like. So, the snake... The stick turning into a snake and then turning back into a staff again is symbolic of the control over the Egyptian power source, the pharaoh. And that comes into play later when this is one of the signs that's performed before the magicians of pharaoh. And as you recall, you know, Aaron throws the staff down, becomes a snake. The magicians of Pharaoh throw down their staffs, they become a snake, but then what happens? The staff of Moses swallows up the others, which is a sign of where this is going. You know, Egypt's power will be swallowed. So, this it's a symbolic sign. It's not just a random, hey, let's do something weird. Let's turn this, I don't know, staff into a snake. It's, it means something theologically and in the logic of the story. Uh, the next sign is turning Moses' hand into uh, uh, making it leprous. And leprosy is like some kind of skin disease. It's not like leprosy of today. And every Bible says that. Every footnote says that. It's very careful. It's not the kind of leprosy that we think of today. It's like any sort of a skin disease. 
But uh, the question is, what does this mean? What's the symbolic value of this? Turning it leprous, and then Moses puts his hand back in his cloak, and he takes it out, and it's going to be clean again. Um, but some have suggested this is another example of uh, God's control over the properties of nature, which you're going to see in the plagues, which to me is not that satisfying an answer. It might also be something like, this is symbolic of God purifying the nation for entering into the land of Canaan. Because that's one of the problems with the Canaanites. They're not a pure people. They're very unclean people. They have to leave the land so the Israelites can come in, but they have to be purified themselves in order to enter it. It could be something like that. I'm just, I'm not grasping for straws. I'm just like channeling what other people have said. But there's no explanation in the text, so people are bound to sort of ask themselves, what the heck's going on here? But then he says, okay, listen, if those don't work, here's something else you can do. It's not called a sign, but he says he can turn the Nile to blood. And what's weird about that is that this, the, these signs, let's call all three of them signs just for convenience sake, they're clearly, I think, meant for the elders, that's the topic of discussion here. And then you see at the end of chapter 4 in verse 29, that's what happens. Moses performs all the signs God showed him before the elders to convince him. Yet, the staff is also assigned to Pharaoh, and the turning the water of the Nile into blood is the first plague. So, you know, it's like a couple of these at least sort of hang over as something that are just given to Pharaoh, not just the elders, you know. I mean, that's not really a problem. I just find it interesting, like, two of these things are used in the plagues, and two of them are signs for Israel, uh, for the elders to convince them. And eh, don't lose sleep over it. I won't. It's just these little, it's these little irritating, odd sort of details in these texts. Once you start reading them closely, it just makes you stop and think. Okay, so... We're moving to the end here, but he's not done. He's got a fourth complaint. This is in chapter 4, like verses 10 through 12. It basically amounts to like, you know, <laughs> I'm not really cut out for public speaking. You know, the, the text says something like that I'm heavy or dull or slow of mouth and of tongue. And I've heard this explained as like, well, maybe, maybe Moses is like, has a stuttering problem. I don't, I don't think that's what's happening here. Uh, he might just be saying, I'm just, I get tongue-tied, Rolf. I'm not good at speaking. I'm ineloquent. I don't really want to do this. And so God answers him. <laughs> again. See, it's, it's again, you know, the battle of the eyes I mentioned before. Moses says, how can I do this? I can't talk. I'm not eloquent. And God responds, I'm the one who gives speech to mortals. I do it. You don't do it. I'm going to be with you. You don't have to worry. I, 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 I. So, which I is doing this? And I think, yeah, I don't want to get too sort of Sunday school this year, but I think one of the issues that's happening is that Moses hasn't yet learned to trust God for this future endeavor. I think he's, and again, I can't blame the guy who wouldn't do this, but he's thinking like, okay, you're asking me to do something. I'm not equipped. And the answer is pretty much throughout, by God, I'm equipped and I'm with you. So, the fourth complaint ends like that, and then you have the fifth complaint. This is how this section ends. It goes down to like verse 17. And we have an honest moment, finally, from Moses. He says, listen, 
I just don't want to do it. Just can you just send somebody else, please? And this first time God becomes angry with Moses, his anger is kindled against Moses. And I frankly like to think God is exhibiting remarkable patience in this story for somebody who just, listen, the burning bush thing, I'm talking to you and you're arguing with me? You know, what the heck's going on with that? Don't do that. So God finally gives in. He says, oh, listen, fine, Moses, fine. Aaron will do the talking. I'll tell you what to say, and then you tell Aaron what to say. So in other words, you don't have to talk. Aaron will be your mouth. So Aaron will do the talking for you. You're going to tell him what to say. So in other words, Moses is sort of playing, hear me out when I say this, Moses is playing like a godlike role to Aaron. He is the one who is now going to speak on God's behalf to Aaron. So Aaron sort of becomes Moses, takes his role, and Moses sort of takes God's role. And it even says this in this section. It says that you will serve as God to Aaron. The only problem is that in Hebrew, it doesn't say you will serve as God. You'll, you'll be sort of like God. It says actually, and it's, it's quite direct, he says, you, Moses, will become God for Aaron. You become God, right? Now, I don't think Moses here is getting zapped with divinity or anything like that. I don't think he's becoming God ontologically, you know, in a theological sense or a philosophical sense. But I think this is just common of prophetic rhetoric, the way it prophets, you know, when prophets talk, they rarely say, God said this, and then God said that, then God said that. They speak of God in the first person. Thus saith the Lord, I, blah, blah, blah. So the prophets are sort of taking on the role of God, mediating God to the people. And I think that's what's happening here. Moses is taking on this God role for the people. And that happens again, like later on in chapter 7, we'll read that Moses, uh, likewise, becomes God to Pharaoh, right? He's confronting Pharaoh like a god. Or not like a god, I shouldn't say that, as god. Remember we talked in the first week how the two main characters of this book are not Moses and Pharaoh. It's Yahweh and Pharaoh. Why? Because Pharaoh is representative of the gods of Egypt. Right? He, he's the one who mediates the gods to the people. Well, Moses is mediating Yahweh to Aaron and to the people and to Pharaoh. So the issue really here is the struggle is between Yahweh and the gods of Egypt, and their two representatives, which are Pharaoh and Moses. Although Moses, hey pal, bad career move here. You're saying, no, 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 thank you. I don't want this honor. Can somebody else do the talking? And God's sort of exasperated. Like you want to do something nice for your kid and they just don't realize it, and they throw it back in your face. Fine, you know, it's, that's sort of how I'm reading this. You know, Moses is not doing something that, you know, should be something he'd be very honored to do. So God says, fine, I'll give it to your brother, Aaron, but I'm not giving up on you. You're going to be God to him. Right, Moses, I have something big planned for you. Well, okay, so this long back and forth between God and Moses, these five complaints. It's finally over, and now finally Moses gets with the program. This is the last section, section three of these two chapters. And so it begins in verse uh, 18 by 
approaching his father-in-law Jethro, and it seems like he's basically lying to him because he wants to go. He basically says, you know, listen, I want to see how my kindred are doing, how my brothers are doing. I'd like to go back, sort of check out how everyone is. Okay, why doesn't he just say, um, Jethro, you might want to be sitting down here, but I've met Yahweh, and he told me to do something. I've got to go do it. Instead, he sort of says, I, I, he makes up a little story. Another lie in the book of Exodus, early in chapter 4. But is he, is he afraid of what Jethro will say? Does, does Moses have self-doubt? Is this one of those awkward in-law moments? Like, you know, you marry my daughter, and you've given me one or two grandchildren at this point, and you're leaving to do what? To deliver the Israelites from Egyptian slavery? Dude, you're crazy. So he just basically tells him a story, you know. And you know, here's the thing, too. The last time Moses went out to see his brothers was back in chapter 2, verse 11, and a couple verses after that. This is where Moses goes out to see, to be among his brothers, to see them. And that's when he sees an Egyptian beating on one of his brothers. And what does he do to the Egyptian? He kills him. And that's what started this whole thing spiraling downward. But now, it's this beautiful reversal. You know, I'm going to go back now, and I'm going to see what my brothers are doing. But this time, it's not, it's not that mini deliverance where I kill that one Egyptian, which is probably me going off half-cocked and being temperamental. But now I'm being sent by God himself, and I'm going to confront the Egyptians en masse now a second time, and now things are going to go down. So, verse 19. This is one of those weird parts of, of Exodus that makes people think, you know, we've got different traditions here that are just being edited together by somebody, because he just got done telling Jethro, you know, I'm going to go back and see how my brothers are doing. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. Then verse 19, then the Lord, Yahweh, said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all those who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and sons, put them on a donkey, and went back to the land of Egypt, and Moses carried the staff of God in his hand. We already know that Moses is going back to Egypt, because that's what the whole long section was about. But now it seems to be as if, you know, it's a rather abrupt and choppy thing to throw in there. And this is what, you know, some scholars say, in verse 19 and some of the stuff in this chapter come from a different tradition that had a different way of telling the story, but this is a good way of sort of bringing them all together, or at least bringing them both together, the male and be two at this point, bringing these traditions together and sort of honoring them and not forgetting them. And so you have basically Moses, it seems like, told twice to go back to Egypt, but more interesting to me is the fact that the reason he's allowed to go back is because those who are seeking your life are dead. And it's like, <clears throat> what are you saying? It, it's like okay to go back now? You know, what, what about all these wonders and powers, these plagues? I mean, like, like I couldn't go back until somebody died. It seems like a very ungodlike move. Right, a, a different kind of way God is presented than what we saw in the verses before. You know, here's what you're going to do: you're going to go, you're going to show all these powers and signs, you're going to convince Pharaoh with you know with my 
mighty hand and my outstretched arm and things are going to go down and the Egyptian is going to be sorry about all this. But now it's like, hey, go back. You know what? Those guys who are trying to kill you, they're dead. Yeah, it's just, it's just, you know, it's one of these things that requires an explanation and people have given their explanations. They've tried. Why not? But maybe even more interesting than that is how this very verse you know, all those who are seeking your life are dead. That very verse is quoted virtually verbatim in the book of Matthew chapter 2. This is when the Holy Family is down in Egypt, and Joseph is told by God, I guess in a dream, right, it's okay to go back home because all those who are seeking your life are dead. And of course, this is referring to Herod and the edict to kill the male children. Now, oh, actually, to kill just the babies, the infants, three years or younger, whatever it was. But it's like what Matthew seems to be doing here, it's, it's one of Matthew's things to present Jesus in a way that like reverberates these Old Testament stories, especially David and especially Moses. So, Matthew says, that, okay, Jesus coming out of Egypt to go back home with his family that's sort of like Moses going back to his home, which happens to be Egypt, because the threat is over, right? So, so Matthew is playing on this verse, this very odd verse, I think, in Exodus to say something about Jesus's Jewishness and his Moses-like activities. Yes, I do think that's very interesting. I like when the Bible does that. It's very literally connected, you know. And another th way of looking at this, though, is that um, it's not so much, and this is, a, I'm just throwing interpretation and possibilities out there. It's not so much, it's okay now, it's safe to go back. It's more like now's the time to go back because our oppressors are dying. Our exodus has begun. Now go back and finish it. This is already previewing, in a sense, what's going to happen. Your oppressors are going to meet with an untimely end. They're dying. And now you're going to go back and finish your job. I think that's an interesting possibility for interpretation. Again, I'm not going to bet the farm on that if I had a farm, but it's it's at least, again, these stories, they just they talk like this and like they don't explain themselves. This book doesn't come with footnotes. We just have to try to figure things out. Okay, we're coming to the end here, folks. Just uh, two or three more points. In verse 21, right, we're in this last section here of, of these chapters. In, in verse 21... God reminds Moses, you know, perform the wonders before Pharaoh, which will be the plagues. But then God says something that frankly seems to contradict something he just said before. He says, you know, perform the wonders before Pharaoh, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Right In verse, uh, well, chapter 3, verse 19, the plagues will be necessary in order to convince Pharaoh. So you think, okay, that's great. But now it's like perform the wonders, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to harden his heart so that he won't let the people go. Okay, so which is it? Are the plagues going to work to convince him to let them go? And then you're just going to step in and harden his heart so they don't let them go? That doesn't seem to be fair. And of course, this is played out in the plague story, right? They And the plagues themselves both happen. After Pharaoh gives in, this is especially the last three plagues, after Pharaoh gives in, God hardens his heart to send more plagues. And I, I sort of compare this to a cat playing with a mouse. 
to show who's boss, just toying with it. You know, you carry it around, you bat it around with your paws, and then you let it revive itself, and then you sort of bat it again. It's like God is playing with Pharaoh here. He's hardening his heart, because I'm not done yet. I've convinced you by my mighty hand and outstretched arm that you need to let the people go, and I know you're ready, but I'm not. And it sounds sort of cruel and stuff, but, you know, it's, it is the story. I'm not sure if I would make final determinations about the nature of God from this verse, but there you have it. You know, the, these two things contradict each other in, in a strict sense, but I think in the context of the book of Exodus as a whole, it's simply saying that, yeah, the plagues are going to do the job, but only when I say so. I want 10 plagues, not six or five. And to keep things going, even after you're ready to go, I have to harden your heart, Pharaoh, so you're not going to let the people go, even after you said you will. Because guess what? Remember what we said before, this all has to get to the 10th plague. What's the 10th plague? Well, that's the death of the firstborn of Egypt, right, by this destroyer, so-called angel of death, sometimes it's called, that's not a right translation of the Hebrew, but that's the 10th plague. Right. This, is, this is what he gets into in verse 22. Israel is called God's firstborn son, right? And remember, you know, in first, God's firstborn son, Israel is oppressed by the Egyptians. And in fact, the sons, plural, the Israelite sons are, you know, thrown into the Nile by an edict by Pharaoh back in chapter 1. So, so there's no true payback for how God treated his son Israel generally, and the boys specifically. There's no true payback until the 10th plague. This is really the principle of an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. You do this, and this is what will happen to you. It's, it's retribution. It's justice by retribution. Also, this firstborn son, Israel being God's firstborn son, this is son of God language, which in the Old Testament is more often than not the language of royalty. See, when kings... Kings in the ancient world, not just in Israel, but were thought of as like the offspring of the gods, a son of God. And certainly in the Old Testament too, if you look at Psalm 2, the king is God's son, for example. So, you know, that's when he becomes king, when he's coronated, so to speak. He's, at that point, he's begotten by God. He's, he's born of God. So, it's often a royal term, but here it seems to be more like familial. And, you know, this is my firstborn son. I'm the, I'm, I'm the dad of Israel. And this is my firstborn son, which means it's they have pride of place. I care for them. They're special to me. And that might put a spin even on the Son of God language in the New Testament. Because there, you know, Jesus is God's son. And in one sense, that means that's royal language. Like David is a son of God for being king. Well, Jesus as Messiah is son of God. But he also may be son of God in fulfilling not just royal destiny, but Israel's destiny. See, Jesus fulfills Israel's role as, you know, a mediator of the covenant of God to the nations. And we'll see that later in the book of Exodus. Israel's role as a kingdom of priests, it says. So, Jesus as son of God is, well, that's, that's language that you already see here in the book of Exodus chapter 4, where Israel is God's son and Jesus embodies Israel's role, so to speak. Okay, one more point. Oh, gosh. This is a doozy. This is how this chapter basically ends, and it's just plain weird. It's, it's verses 24 to 26. 
here's what's happening. Okay, God just told Moses, even though Moses was reluctant, he finally caved and God sort of convinced him to go to Egypt to deliver the Israelites from slavery. But now all of a sudden, without warning, in verse 24, on the way at a place where they might spend the night, that's how the New Revised Standard Version puts it, the Lord met him and tried to kill him, right? And apparently the reason for that is that their son wasn't circumcised. So Zipporah, his wife, this is one of the daughters of Midian that he marries, she steps in with a flint knife and circumcises her son, and then with the foreskin, she touches Moses' feet, which is almost certainly a euphemism for his genitals. And she touches Moses' feet with the foreskin, and she says, truly, to Moses, you are a bridegroom of blood to me. Uh, what? <laughs> exactly. Don't preach on this in church, because I think it's just too difficult. This is a very ambiguous passage. It's grammatically ambiguous in Hebrew. There are a lot of pronouns like he, he, him, him that are thrown around, and you're not always sure if the he is Moses or if the he is the son. So it's, it's a tough one to understand, but regardless of all that stuff, it's this is like a pretty serious about face. You know, here, just... <laughs> You don't expect God to turn on anybody for any reason at this point. After all that they went through, just with these speeches and the burning bush, now why try to kill him? And the bottom line is that this is a big puzzle. And the best answer I have is one that I've heard, I don't make this up, is that this episode is somehow connected to the Passover episode that comes later in the book. So you think of it this way, the, the, this shedding of blood in the Passover, and also here in the circumcision, it, it designates the insiders. Who, who are the insiders? Who are the people of God? Who's Israel? And protects the firstborn. Right? See, it, it seems like, I mean, it, okay, Moses has two sons at this point, but there's only one here. And some have said, how can they have one son when he had two? Did one of them die? No. Probably the only important son here is the firstborn son, who isn't circumcised. That's that's what I think it is. I mean, I could be wrong, but that's that's sort of how I've put these pieces together. So here is a son who's not circumcised. So here, in order to protect him and anybody from getting killed, is to circumcise him. So here his son is circumcised, just like later on in the Passover episode, what's going to happen, but the firstborn of Israel is not going to die by this plague of death because of the blood of the lamb, right? The lamb is slaughtered and the blood is painted on the doors. Now, it's still weird. Okay, granted, it's it's a really, really odd way, I think, of ending this chapter. And, and a lot of people said it just seems to be stuck here. It's almost like a separate folkloric kind of element that, like, it's just here and it probably meant something to people back then. And, you know, what does it mean you were a bridegroom of blood to me? It's, it's really hard to know. People have taken some good stabs, and I don't want to spend time doing that here because it's, it's one of these explanations. To do what right would take 20 minutes. I don't want to do that. And I think at the end of the day, we still wouldn't know. But it's, 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 so it's sort of weird. Now, one thing that's not as weird is that here we have another woman hero in the book of Exodus. It was Moses' sister and then Pharaoh's daughter, right, uh, uh, bringing Moses to safety as a child. And it was the women who would help the Israelite women give birth to children, right? 
And now here we have another woman who comes to the rescue, who sees the problem, and she takes the matter into her own hands, literally, right, and circumcises the son. And others, I mean, again, I think this is that's a very valid observation, by the way. And another valid observation, this may not be the whole point of the story, but there's a parallel here between another famous divine confrontation, this one involving Jacob wrestling with God back in Genesis. You know, there's important stuff is going down. You know, Jacob is renamed Israel, and it's the beginning of something new and fresh. And so, here we have another divine confrontation with the human deliverer, this time Moses. But <laughs> there, there are probably really good reasons why this is here. It's just hard to see them. But at the end of the day, you know, couldn't God have simply told Moses all this earlier? Like, why wait? Until after, oh, by the way, <laughs> forgot to tell you, uh, somebody's not circumcised, you're going to die. You could have said that earlier and it would have avoided these problems, which means it's so weird and so out of place. There's probably a reason for it we don't see. So anyway, okay. He connects with Aaron just as God had promised, which by the way, he connects with Aaron in the wilderness. Did Aaron just sort of walk out of Egypt? Right, it's one of these little moments in the story that just doesn't explain. Like, I don't think Aaron's a slave, right? He's he's an Israelite. He can't just walk out. And then they meet in the wilderness, and they both re-enter Egypt like nobody's watching. Again, I just I, I'm not going to try to explain it. It's just there. And when you read the text carefully, these things sort of jump out at you. But of course, meets with the elders. As I said, he performs the signs. They believe and they worship. And now it's all about to go down. Now Moses is back. He's been accepted by the people as the deliverer. They're not going to grumble against him too much one time in this book, but after that, not for quite a while, at least a few chapters. <laughs> Poor Moses. He's grumbled against a lot. But at this point, everybody's on board. Okay, folks. Well, that brings us to the end of chapter four, the end of this podcast on part two of Pete Ruins Exodus. Hope you've enjoyed it. And I'll be back in a few weeks with the next installment where we're going to cover a bit more ground. I plan to get through all the plagues, again, from 30,000 feet, but there's a lot happening there, a lot of theological significance. Again, as always, thanks for downloading and listening. It means a lot to me. It means a lot to Jared and the work we're trying to do. Thanks for being a part of this. See you next time. Bye-bye.